If you would take your Bibles, please, and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Today we come to the end of this part of the Sermon on the Mount, in which Jesus contrasts the original intent of the law with what people had been taught, mistakenly. And the first four contrasts we saw last week, it dealt with the rights of others, that they are to be treated with respect, not murdered in our thoughts or in our hearts, not belittled in our speech. They're not to be treated as mere objects, things to be lusted after, or to be discarded once we get tired of them. They are to have the security, the certainty, the assurance that when we tell them something, it is in fact the case. That when we say yes, we mean yes. But as we saw last week, now we come to the issue of our own rights. I am not to belittle or humiliate or insult another person, but what if I am insulted or humiliated? I am to treat people with respect, but what if I am not treated with respect? I am to be a person of my word, but what if other people are not honest with me? Jesus addresses the issue of how we are to respond. What we saw last Sunday, Jesus addresses the issue of personal justice, and I would say in contrast to social justice when we're dealing with society at large. The principle that people followed was that of the principle of retribution, an eye for an eye, life for life, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. This is something we find in the law. There's several things to be dealt with, and just to review a bit. First of all, this is in fact just. A lot of people will quote this, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and see it as barbaric. They go along with Gandhi who said, an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. Well, actually it doesn't. What this principle does is it defines justice, that there is right and there is wrong. It defines the punishment, but it also restrains revenge. So, if you gouge out my eye, I do not have the right to take your life. I cannot go beyond the crime that you have committed. The punishment is specified and the punishment is limited. I think this is really important because there are times, I think, in the human heart when we want to do more uh, to the person than what has happened to us and we want the courts to do more damage to them than that person has done to us. And I think I mentioned in the Babylonian legal code, if a contractor built a house and it collapsed and there was, if somebody was killed, then not only was he put to death, but his whole family. Um, that's not God's law. It is a life for life and an eye for an eye. The law allows recompense. That is, that you pay, rather than having your eye gouged out, you can pay damages for what you have done. The law doesn't give us the right of revenge. In Leviticus 19, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. By the time that Jesus came on the scene, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had extended this principle. They had taken it, in a sense, out of courts and brought it into the personal realm, where people could, in fact, get revenge on their own and still be legal by the code of that time. Jesus seeks to correct this. But you know, I think that even if that had not happened in the human heart, we want our revenge. You know, we want payback. When someone has done something to us, uh, we really want to get back at them. 
What Jesus points out here is that the principle of justice is not a personal issue, it's a social issue. It's not something I can take into my own hands. Um, on a personal level, my dealings are to be based not on justice, but on love. It is love that is to motivate me, not justice. On a macro level, if you wish, in society, justice is what protects us from being wiped out. But on a personal level, we are to be guided by love. What we hear from Jesus is, do not resist an evil person. I, as an individual, am not to resist an evil person when he or she seeks to do damage to me. But those who are in positions of authority, as Paul points out in Romans 13, they are absolutely to punish those who have done wrong. Jesus gives us four scenarios in which we are not to resist an evil person. By the way, I pointed out last week, Jesus is saying that there is such a thing as an evil person. Okay? That evil does exist in human society. The first scenario is when somebody insults your honor by a physical slap in the face. And Jesus is very specific, your right cheek, because that means that you have been hit with the backhand. Um, the second involves unfair litigation. When someone takes you to court and wants to take something from you, give them even more. The third scenario is a historical situation where the Roman soldiers had the right, because they were the occupying force, to grab anybody off the street and say, here, carry my luggage, my baggage, for a mile. And Jesus says if they do that, obviously the Jews hated it, it was humiliating, but Jesus says, go a second mile. And this is the, the English expression, go the extra mile, it comes from this. And then the fourth scenario involves giving. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. As I said last Sunday, at least to me, it's not clear who Jesus is talking about. Is it, is it the enemy, the evil person who wants to borrow money? Why would you lend money to an evil person? Or is it someone who is a family member or a friend who, in fact, doesn't pay back what they owe? Um, I think what it does is it, it leads us to ask the question, are we supposed to be doormats? Are, are we supposed to let people just walk all over us? Is this what it means to be a Christian? To be treated like dirt, to, just to be uh, misused and abused by people? Is there no justice for us? There's social justice, but not personal justice. Um, we are to leave vengeance to God. He sees the heart. He sees the motives. Oftentimes we mistake why people do certain things because we can't see into their minds or into their hearts. And he knows best how to mete out justice. But then this raises another question. Is there no place for justice? Are we as God's people not to worry about justice? Well, absolutely we are. And in fact, it is a major concern for God's people. We are called to, def to defend the rights of widows and the fatherless for those that are aliens, for those who have no support, who have no protection. The authorities are, in fact, to maintain peace and order, if you wish, law and justice, peace and justice. We are not to revenge ourselves or seek revenge. We are, in fact, to respond in love. We are to seek justice for those who are our neighbors. And, in fact, this has marked the history of the church, from time to time. Sadly, from time to time, it has not. And I think most recently, the church has not been known uh, as it should for being in favor of justice. What we hear and learn from Jesus is it is because of love that we turn the other cheek. It is because of love that we allow ourselves to be wronged. 
It is because of love that we go the extra mile, and it is because of love that we learn freely. But again, as I mentioned last week, there are times when love tells us not to turn the other cheek, and not to allow ourselves to be wronged, and not to go the extra mile, and not to lend freely, because to do that would in fact not be showing love to the evil person. There are times, people have called it tough love, there are times when we say no, we will not allow you to do this. And in doing that, it's not that we don't love the person, it is precisely because we love the person that we do not allow them to do that. You're like, great. Sometimes I'm supposed to turn the other cheek, other times I'm not. How am I supposed to know? Well, we go back to the first beatitude that starts this whole sermon. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We must, moment by moment, look to the Spirit of God for wisdom, for guidance, because on our own we will not know how to act. And if there is any doubt of this, now we come to our passage today, which is, it's one of those things when you go by verse, verse by verse you wish you could skip over, because it is, in fact, the most difficult part of the Sermon on the Mount. Look, if you would, beginning in verse number 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. As with the other contrasts, Jesus presents what is commonly believed. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. As with the other contrasts, this is what people believed was how they were supposed to act. And what makes it confusing is that a part of it, in fact, is found in the law. It starts out here, love your neighbor. This comes from a verse I just read a moment ago in Leviticus 19. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. Now you will notice that the contrast that Jesus gives here, it doesn't say love your neighbor as yourself, does it? It's simply love your neighbor. And then they added hate your enemy, which is not found anywhere in the Old Testament. This is what human beings have done for centuries. They take scripture, a part of it, they narrow it, they twist it, and then they add to it. The narrowing that is done here is, you know, to love your neighbor as yourself, that's a pretty high standard. That's setting the bar pretty high. To love somebody the way that I love and care for myself. And so rather than having the bar up there, they simply say, love your neighbor. So now the focus is not on loving them as myself, it's simply love them. And, and then that sort of leaves it wide open as to what that means and how much or how little you can love your neighbor. And it allows for the addition in terms of the object. Because now that we're just talking about the neighbor, then we can also talk about the enemy. See, if they went with love your neighbor as yourself, they could never get to hate your enemy because that, that wouldn't work. But once you limit it to neighbor... Then you just enemy, love, neighbor, enemy, hate. And this is what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had done. 
In Scripture, we find no mention of hating one's enemies. In fact, we read quite the opposite. When an alien lives with you in your land, do not mistreat him. In Exodus 23, it's a series of laws that are given. If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to take it back to him. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you fallen down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure you help him with it. So there are apparently enemies. And the response the law tells us is to help them out. It's not to hate them. It's not to abuse them in any way. It is, in fact, to help them. In Deuteronomy 30, an enemy is described as one who hates and persecutes you. Jesus tells us that we are to pray for those that persecute us. What we find is that the people of the first century had been told, based from the teachers of the law, they had taken a command, they had narrowed it, they had changed its focus, and then they added to it. Jesus doesn't give us a new law. He doesn't give us a new interpretation. He points back to the original intent and in the process deepens our understanding. The new injunction begins in verse 44. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This raises a question, what is love? It sounds great, but what does it mean to love my neighbor? How do I love my enemies? Well, we've seen that in the law, the Ten Commandments, consists of two parts, two tables, which can be summarized in the two great commandments. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and we are to love our neighbors ourselves. And the love uh, that we are to show to our neighbor, well, love toward God, we are, to not, we are to be content. We're not to seek to have other gods. We're not to have a graven image. We're not to abuse his name. And we are to trust him by resting on the Sabbath. Well, the last six deal with our relationship with our fellow human beings, that we are to love them by not murdering them, by not committing adultery, by not stealing, by not bearing false witness, and, not, and by not coveting. And as we've seen in these contrasts, these aren't very narrow commands, these are quite broad. And even in our prayer of confession today, as I read the commandment and then you responded, we see that it is not this narrow thing of don't do this, don't do that. Um, it is, in fact, that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. So loving my neighbor isn't merely a matter of emotion, that I feel this, this overwhelming warmth toward another person. It's clearly defined actions. Now, there are times, I think, when we do have deep emotions as we love our neighbor as ourselves. Love is, in fact, supposed to involve some emotion, unless you imagine, as Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you, that this is purely cold. I'm just saying these words, but I don't really love this person. No, we are to pray for those, in fact, who persecute us. If when we pray to God, interceding for another person is an expression of our love, then I think we better love the person that, in fact, we are praying for. Oftentimes, I think what happens is we begin praying for someone that we don't particularly care for, but in the process, God brings into our heart a love for that person that we love them as we should. This means we don't wait until we feel love before we start praying for them. We obey Jesus as he commands us here in this sermon. In doing this, we show who we really are. Are we the children of God? 
And that's what Jesus says here, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Are we, in fact, children of God? If, in fact, we do not love our enemies, if we do not pray for those who persecute us, those who hate us, are we just being like everybody else? Are we not being the children of God? Human beings do have the capacity to love. We're made in God's image. And in spite of sin and the havoc it has wreaked in the human race, we are so corrupted. And yet, amazingly, by God's grace, we have the capacity to love. And yet it is always tainted. It is contaminated. It is corrupted to some degree by sin. Unredeemed sinners can in fact love. Parental love, brotherly, sisterly love, conjugal love, love of friends. These are a part of the experience of those who are outside of Christ. Even the lowest in society, and that's who Jesus points to here, those who are tax collectors, those who are pagans, even these people have the capacity to love. The tax collectors were more than simply the IRS. They, in fact, were collaborators. They collected taxes for Rome. And as we've learned from history, they collected more than what was required and pocketed the difference. And yet these people had the capacity to love. They gave love for love. They loved those who loved them. So if we love people, then we're not really doing anything very special there. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get, Jesus asked? Or not even the tax collectors doing that. The way of the world is to give love for love, good for good, and evil for evil. Jesus calls us to love the undeserving, the unloving, those who are hostile to us. This is completely subversive. This is radical. This is nonconformist. In doing this, we upset the balance in society. Society loves balance, and you know, if you do good, and you know, people respond in good. If you do evil, people respond in evil. But if all of a sudden you have a group of people who, in response to evil, do good, show love, well, that's really throwing things in, into chaos. How can we live this way if people are loving those who are mistreating them? Instead of revenge, we are to love passively. Instead of hatred, we are to love actively. Our response, no matter what, is to be love. How do we greet fellow Christians? Jesus would ask us. How do we greet non-Christians? Do we limit ourselves, our greetings, in a particular way to particular people? Um, and here Jesus is speaking about the everyday. This is not heroic. This is not big. This is not trumpets blowing. This is just everyday greeting one another. Um, greetings for us, I think, have really lost a lot. For, you know, hi, have a nice day, things like that. But in Jesus' day, the greeting was Shalom Aleikum. Very similar to uh, the Arabic today, Shalom uh, salam Aleikum. Literally, peace be with you. So not just high. You know, this is may God's peace be with you. Well, to people that I like, to people that I love, yeah, I want to say this. When I see you Sunday mornings, I want to say to you, God's peace be with you. But to someone who has wronged me, to someone who hates me, to someone who persecutes me, do I want to say 
God's peace be with you. The Jews were hesitant. In fact, they would not use such a greeting with pagans. Jesus tells us if we are a citizen of the kingdom, we are to treat people with love and greet them with love. We are to obey Christ. And in some sense, we are imitating our Father in heaven who allows the sun to shine not just on the good people, but on evil people. And when it rains, it rains not simply on the righteous, but the unrighteous as well. And if we are going to be like our Father, then we have to be the same way. By the way, what we find in verse number 45 refers to something that theologians call common grace. The reality is everything that we have, whether we are Christians or not, comes from God. It is God's grace. The sun is shining. That's God's grace. Even to those who are not his people. Therefore, it's called common grace as opposed to saving grace. And if God does this to people who curse him, to people who say he does not exist, to people who either literally or figuratively raise their fists at him, if this is what God does, then if we are his people, we are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. This part has been difficult enough, but now we come to the last verse of chapter 5, and it is perhaps one of the most difficult sayings in scripture, be perfect therefore as your heavenly father is perfect. It'd be very tempting to look at my watch and say, you know, it's about time for us to bring this to a close. Uh, or let's skip over this. No, let's, let's see what it is that Jesus calls us to do. What does Jesus mean by perfect? What can he mean by perfect? There are some who say that he's speaking about maturity, that he wants us to be mature. And certainly in Paul's writings, he uses the word that Jesus uses here. He uses it when he calls God's people to become mature. That is to grow up, to be adults in Christ. Um, There's one big problem with that. And that is we are told to be perfect as our father is perfect. Are we saying that God is mature? If we say God is mature, then that must mean there was a time when he was immature. And God is not a God of process. God is eternal and he does not change. There is no movement, if you wish, in God toward a higher plane. God is holy and he is perfect. He is not mature. He is perfect. Some say that what Jesus is talking about is in a really narrow sense. And there have been in the last century and a half those in the church who have spoken of uh, momentary perfection, that there are perhaps moments in our life when we, it's not that we achieve perfection per se, but that for a moment we're just without sin. This is simply not the case. Sinlessness must wait until Jesus returns and we are in the eternal state. Uh, or when we die before he comes back, we will be without sin. Um, we know that we have sin. Jesus tells us in chapter 6 in the Lord's Prayer to forgive us our debts. In the Beatitudes, we're called to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Um, Because this is simply not something we will do on our own. 
So what does Jesus mean? If it's not maturity and if it's not momentary perfection, what can Jesus mean? Well, there are three things I think that will help open this up to us. First of all, the immediate context. As Jesus has given us these contrasts, and he'll continue in chapter 6, there are two parties of antagonists, if you wish. Don't be like these people. Don't be like these people. On the one hand, you have the Pharisees. These are legalists. These are hypocrites. People who live by narrowly defined rules and, in fact, whose piety was really a facade. That, in fact, what was inside was not very pleasant. On the other side, we have the Gentiles who are marked by faithlessness and immorality. About the Pharisees, Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And in chapter 6, verse number 2, so when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. About the Gentiles, in verse number 47, Jesus asks the question, do not even the pagans do that? And again, in chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, and when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. And then later in chapter 6, so do not worry saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For pagans, the pagans run, run after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. So Jesus says to his disciples, don't be like them. You must in fact do more than what they do. The larger context found here in Matthew as well as in Mark and Luke is the word that is used for perfect. We find it again in Matthew when we have the story of the rich young ruler. A man comes and asks Jesus about eternal life. That is, how does he become a Christian? How does he enter the kingdom of heaven? Jesus speaks to him about the commandments. And which commandments are these? They're all from the second uh, tablet, the second table, how he treats other people. That is, that which is summarized as love your neighbors yourself. And the rich young man says, I've kept all of these. What do I still lack? That is, I've loved my neighbor or my neighbors as myself. And Jesus doesn't say, of course you haven't kept all these commandments. He says, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. You see, if the man in fact had loved his neighbors as himself, as he claimed, he would have freely given to them what he had. He would have helped them in their time of need. The truth is the man had not kept the commandments in the original sense intended. It was his love of wealth, his trust in wealth, that caused him to go away very sad because he could not be a disciple of Jesus. In that verse, Jesus speaks of being perfect, of loving one's neighbor as oneself, that is, selling all and giving it to the poor, and following him. I think this is critical to understanding. Perfection, loving our neighbors ourself and following Jesus. So what is the basis? This is the third thing. What is the basis for the call of Jesus? And why, why in the world should we obey it? Well, first of all, we have the example of Jesus. Jesus is speaking to those who would be his disciples. And if they want to follow him, they must be like him. They must follow his example. It is the call of faith. And this, I think, is where it really gets difficult. Because the final contrast is between us and unbelievers. 
tax collectors, pagans, and sinners. I mentioned earlier, when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they, do not, they think they will be heard from their many words. Do not be like them. Why not? Jesus continues, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear, for the pagans run after all these things. Why not? Your Heavenly Father knows that you need these things. When the disciples of Jesus, when the followers of Jesus, when we, in fact, become anxious about what we are going to eat or drink or wear, then we are not people of faith. Or as Jesus puts it, we are of little faith. It's a theme found throughout the book of Matthew. So how is it that Jesus expects us to do as he commands? How is it that Jesus expects us to turn the other cheek, allowing our reputation to be defamed? How does Jesus expect us to allow ourselves to be wronged? To be wrongfully sued? To be forced to serve our rights taken away? By loaning and giving way to others? How does he expect us to love our neighbors? How does he expect us to pray for those who hate us? Before I answer that, let me just ask you, why wouldn't we do that anyway? Why wouldn't we love our neighbors? Why wouldn't we pray for those who hate us? Why wouldn't we turn the other cheek? I think because we want to protect ourselves. I think it's a natural instinct. We want to protect ourselves. If we don't protect ourselves, who will? The crux of the matter comes down to this. Who will you trust? Do you trust in yourself and your capacity to protect yourself? Or will you trust in God who will make all things right? The call of Jesus in even this most difficult passage is the call to trust your Heavenly Father. And when we love our neighbor, when we love our enemy, when we pray for those who hate us, We show who our Father is, and we show that we trust him. One author wrote, to return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. To return good for evil is divine. Just as our Father in heaven causes his sun to shine on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, we are to show love for our neighbors, those who are our enemies as well. The mark of the church is to be love. But why don't we love as we should? Because we don't have faith. Because we don't trust God. It is because of unbelief. That is to say, we do not believe what Jesus says. We do not believe that our Father will take care of us. We feel like we have to hate our enemies. We have to get revenge because if we don't, then we could just could be destroyed. And so we have to defend ourselves. And I think in the end, what it boils down to is we think we know better than God. Apparently he's taking his time getting around to taking care and protecting us. Um, we have the logic and the rationality. We have common sense. We have advice from others. We know what we need to do to protect ourselves. We're not always sure that God does. And so the call of Jesus in verse number 48 is to love as our Father loves, 
to love perfectly, which we are incapable of. So why tell us to do what we in fact cannot do? Perfect love is what comes from the Father, and that's what we should show in our lives. That is to say, as God loves me, I love others. Love doesn't start with me. I don't generate love. Love begins with the Father, and it comes to us, and we are to share it with those around us. The love that we are to show is to be the result of faith, that we trust God. We have confidence in our Father, and we will obey him no matter the cost. Verse number 48 is sort of the cap of the sixth contrast. You'll see in verse 43, we have the word therefore. I'm sorry, verse 43? Yes, 43. We have therefore. So he's wrapping up what we've seen thus far, but he's also pointing ahead to what comes in chapter 6. What the Father does, he knows what we need, and he provides for us. He sees what is done in secret, we are told, and he cares for his creation. And therefore, we are to pray to him. We have the Lord's Prayer. We are to do our work for him and not others. We are to serve him. We are to seek his kingdom. We are to trust him. You're like, fine. I give up. I'll just trust him and love as I should. The reality is we have no love to offer beyond that which we have been given. The only thing you and I can offer is unbelief. This we have in spades. It is our natural state. It is unnatural for us to believe God. He must enable us. He must give us faith. He must show his love and he has shown his love and by his grace we are then to exercise them. Unbelief is the root sin. This is the root of all our problems. Jesus is our example. Someone who trusted his father implicitly even to the point of going and being put to death on the cross. We hear him crying out, Father, forgive them. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. In the book of Leviticus, at least five times we hear the phrase in which God tells his people to be holy because he is holy. In chapter 11, I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God, therefore be holy because I am holy. In chapter 19, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the entire assembly and say to them, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. But there's one time that this is mentioned that I think opens it all up for us. It's in chapter 20 of Leviticus. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and follow them. I am the Lord who makes you holy. When God calls on his people to be holy, the only way they can be holy is because God makes them holy. And here in our passage today, the most difficult part of the Sermon on the Mount, the call of Jesus is to love our neighbors with the love of God to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. And if we've learned anything from the Sermon on the Mount, it is that we are not perfect, but it is also that we are not alone. That's why blessed are the poor in spirit. They're given things. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. It is the, our Father who works in us by his spirit. 
It is the Father's love that has been shed abroad in our lives that we are to share with others. And it is in Jesus that we see this perfectly shown. So when we read verse number 48, the temptation is to throw our hands up in despair and say, who can do this? This is ridiculous. I, I can't do this. The reality is, I think it should take us back to the first beatitude that we are poor. The only way I can love is because God has loved me. We shouldn't sit there and somehow try to imagine that we can generate some work up, some love and affection for those around us. It is God's love that has been shown to us that we in turn show to others. And the only way this happens is by faith, that we trust God. I mentioned to you uh, last Sunday this, uh, this incident that happened in Canada some years ago um, of a family whose teenage daughter was kidnapped uh, by a sexual predator and uh, was savage, was raped, and then killed. And the police found her body several months later frozen in a shed. And they came to the house. They, they, they were able to find out who did this and make an arrest. And they came to the house to tell her parents, um, we've found the body of your daughter and we have arrested the man who did this. And the response of the parents was, who is this man? We must love him. Like, what? My natural instinct is to want revenge, to claw this man's eyes out, to have my revenge on him. And their response was the response of Jesus. Who is my enemy? This man who stole our daughter, who took her life, who stole her innocence. This is somebody I must love. Paul tells us that even when we hated God, when we hated God, he loved us. That's the example. On our own, we are not capable. By the grace of God, through faith, may we love our enemies and be like our Father in heaven. Let's pray together. Father, we freely confess that our natural instinct is not to love our neighbor. Not, certainly not to love our enemies. Those who persecute us, those who abuse us, who speak against us, those who damage or tarnish our reputation, who speak evil against us. And yet the words of Jesus are very clear. If we are your people, if we are your children, then we are to be like our Father in heaven who loved us when we were unlovely, who continues to love us even when we sin, who has so generously and freely shown his love day by day, but supremely through the gift of your Son. I think we have forgotten how much you have loved us. And therefore we forget to love others. By your spirit, he who lives within us, this wonderful gift you have given us.
may we become aware, sensitive to the reality of your love in our lives. And then may we show that love to others. Not simply responding good for good, but good for evil. By your Spirit, may we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. We thank you for your word and may your spirit work on our hearts this coming week as we think through these things. And may we put them into practice. Thank you for bringing us together. Thank you for gathering us on this, the first day of a new week. May your spirit and your grace go with us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.